Prepare for the post-browser world, says today's guest, Jonathan Stark. We are moving beyond the browser into a world where the web is consumed by a variety of front-end application technologies. Jonathan is a speaker at the upcoming O'Reilly Fluent Conference in San Francisco, and you can win a free ticket to the conference. To be entered into a random drawing for that ticket, send us a tweet about your favorite episode of Software Engineering Daily between now and February 22nd. Fluent is a conference about the web platform, which certainly includes the browser, but it also includes mobile apps, VR experiences, and smart objects connected to the web. In today's discussion with Jonathan, we explored what adjustments developers need to make in this upcoming post-browser world. Jonathan Stark is a mobile application consultant and the owner of Jonathan Stark Consulting. Jonathan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Today, there are more than 2 billion active mobile devices as compared to 1.4 billion desktop devices. And this divide is growing. There's going to be an increase in mobile devices, uh, perhaps decrease in desktop or at least a static number. Mobile is huge, and it's going to continue to grow relative to desktop. How does this impact front-end developers? I think it has a bunch of different effects that are super interesting. Uh, As I see it, the smartphone itself has kind of turned into the browser. So uh, if you think back to the desktop era, if uh, folks have been coding that long, Uh, everything interesting that happened in the desktop happened inside of the browser window, you know, through the, say the nineties into the two thousands, all of the innovation was happening inside the browser window, all the Ajax web 2.0 stuff and all, all of the, the innovation I would say in user experience and application development and that sort of thing was happening there and not so much in the surrounding operating system. But now the, uh, with mobile devices, the interaction model is very different. And the the things that we've been called on in the past as web developers or web designers or software engineers in general uh, is, is sort of bleeding out of the browser on the mobile device, the mobile browser, and into other areas of the operating system on the phone. And I think that web designers and developers in particular need to think outside of that, you know, think outside of the box, so to speak, the box being the the traditional desktop browser window, start thinking about how they can get their content and services into the surrounding area on the phone. Mm -hmm. So as platforms change and increase in number, we've got phones, we've got watches, we've got VR. So there are different strategies that a developer can take. You know, a developer can switch between platforms aggressively and try to develop expertise in whatever the latest hot technology is, or a developer can try to get deep expertise in a single technology and ignore what is fashionable. Which of these strategies is preferable? I feel pretty strongly that people, you know, freelancers, consultants, or whatever, software professionals need to specialize in something because there's so much going on that the pond is like, you know, if you want to be a big fish in a small pond and be able to charge uh, high rates because you're delivering high value to your clients, you need to be really good at something. And that something can be lots of different things, but you need to be really good at it. So the something could be, like you said, it could be a technology that you specialize in. Like you're, you are the worldwide expert in cross platform push notifications uh, or, you know, something, something very specific like that. And I do mean that specific, uh, or on the flip side, you can continue to learn all of the different technologies that you like to learn, because in my experience, software developers like learning new things and new technologies and playing with the latest shiny thing. And instead of specializing in a technology or a particular skill, you could specialize in a, a vertical market. So you could be the, the sort of mobile expert for dentists, or you could be, you know, like, uh, do, I don't want to say conversion rate optimization, but you could, you could do, you could use your sort of general toolbox of skills to help a particular either market defined by 
uh, market vertical like a, a dentist, or you could do it based on a demographic quality like soccer moms or senior executives, that sort of thing. Something that cuts across industries, but that your your ideal client, the people who uh, exist in that market, would immediately recognize that you are specializing in solving their particular brand of problems with your sort of general toolbox of skills. Mm. So it sounds like there are technological problems that you can solve for people that exist in very specific domains. So maybe for, if you're trying to be the best developer for dentist applications, maybe there's some specific dentist API that's actually really hard to integrate with. And if you become a master of using that dentist API, then you can essentially name your price. Sort of. If I think a better way to look at it would be to say that dentists have subtle, you know, just to pick a just to pick a random one, dentists probably have very specific issues that are accustomed to their their job, their world. So maybe the maybe the most expensive problem that a dentist has is that. Uh, people forget to show up for appointments and every minute that that chair is empty, they're losing $50. So, you know, if as a web developer or a, a general software engineer, you might come up with some technological solutions that could prevent that. So on the one hand, you've got dentists and their special problems, uh, hopefully they're expensive problems. And on <clears throat> that's, that's the, their, so there's a realm of problems that they have. And then there's the realm of skills that you have. And there's some, usually some overlap there. And the overlap is where you want to uh, make a name for yourself. So you could say mm. that if the problem is that dentists have a lot of no-shows and they're losing, you know, 20% of their potential income every year. And you, as a software developer, you have a pretty good idea or you have proof from experience that you can address that issue the dentist is not going to care how you do it, most likely. They just want to know that you can solve that problem. And then once you get talking to them, then maybe they find out how you're going to do it or that you're even a software developer at all. But uh, from a marketing standpoint, you would say, oh, well, I can solve that problem with uh, empty seats. I can solve the empty seats in the dentist office problem. And then if you're talking to a dentist or you know someone who knows a dentist, which is pretty much everyone, then you can say, they can say, well, how the heck do you do that? And you say, oh, well, I, I have this, uh, I don't know, I, I use Twilio to set up uh, SMS messaging so that even your elderly clients who have dumb phones or flip phones, they can get the reminders and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. you get into the whole thing. But I wouldn't, from a marketing standpoint, if you wanted to, wanted to specialize in dentists, the whole, the notion of talking about how you're going to do it or what your process is or how cutting edge your skills are is totally irrelevant to them. They're much more interested in how you're going to solve the problem. So if you're going to specialize in a vertical way, you need to really f uh, focus in on your vertical and their problems and their terminology. And even if they use wrong terms to describe what you do, then then too bad. That's what they think it's called. And, and that's what you put on your, you know, your website, let's say. You're going to be speaking at the Fluent 2016 web conference, which is for developers and designers. And you're going to be speaking about what web professionals can do in a post-browser world. And we're kind of getting into this, uh, this set of topics that you're going to discuss. One of the things that you're going to discuss is the skills that a developer can work on that won't go out of style anytime soon. And it sounds like these are the types of skills that you would want to develop regardless of if you're going to be an iOS developer or a, a developer for dental applications, whatever development work you want to do, you want to develop these set of skills. So could you talk about these skills that developers can work on that won't go out of style? Sure. Um, there, there are three that I talk about. There are many, of course, but there are three that I talk about in, in that session. And they are what I would call horizontal skills as opposed to, you know, as contrasted to the vertical specialization. So this is a horizontal specialization, let's say. And the first one is to learn JavaScript, which wouldn't apply to your iOS people, but uh, it would apply to lots of people. Or if you're, 
if you are just starting in development or if you have friends that are asking you what their kids should study, I think learning JavaScript is an extremely safe bet. I'm not going to say that it's the best language on the planet. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's obviously a, a, it depends on what you're trying to use the tool for, of course, what the best language for your given situation is. But right now, JavaScript is in such an amazing position uh, because you can learn it and apply those skills to so many different problem domains and environments that it's unbelievable. And I just think that for the next 10 years, there's going to be value in knowing how to write a reasonably good JavaScript. Uh, the second thing that I talk about is APIs, being able to build APIs like a REST API. I don't, I don't care what kind of API it is. REST, if you're doing microservices, if, you're, if you want to do SOAP or XML RPC, whatever it is, this explosion of platforms and devices and you know washing machines that are going to need to talk to the internet, talk to each other, there's no, I see no way forward other than to create more and more ways for these machines to talk to each other. And it feels like we've been talking about software, uh, uh, service-oriented architecture for you know 15 years, but now it's time to actually do it. And I think the way to do it in general, not all the time, at least when you're starting out, is to do something that is lightweight, simple, easy to understand, not convoluted, not monolithic. Uh, so whatever in whatever approach you want to take, uh, creating APIs is a skill unto itself. You know, there's throttling and paging and analytics and all, all of these issues, you know, uh, security, it, it goes on and on and on. There are all these things that you need to be able to do when you're creating an API that are, I think, a, a specific skill and that people could, if you're more of a back end person, it'd be a great thing to do to just specialize in creating APIs. You could even go into more special and say that you create APIs to uh, put a front end on legacy systems in the enterprise or who knows. I mean, there's just a million ways that you could specialize on being excellent at creating APIs. Mm. And then the third thing is sort of a general topic around CMSs in general content management management systems. Uh, as we came through the sort of dot-com boom through the 90s and into where we are now, I think we ended up with, I think it's fair to say that we ended up with a lot of web publishing platforms that are being used as CMSs, WordPress being an obvious example. It's really not a CMS. It's a, it's a web publishing application. It's for creating websites. And yes, you can enter content into it. And there's all sorts of administrative rules about you can set up to let different people have access to do different things and all that. But what ends up happening is that uh, it it puts you at that gives it gives you that in the box thinking that all of this content is going to end up in this browser environment in a desktop browser environment and all of the the fields that you're going to get and the data points that you're going to be asked to enter into something like WordPress by default those things are very specific to a website and and in some cases in the worst cases a desktop website now what we should be doing and what i think people are going to be able to make a living at doing for a long time to come is creating either creating cmss that are more output agnostic or cleaning up databases that are not output agnostic Mm. So if you imagine a situation where you've got this website that, uh, you know, is sort of maybe it's a, a blogging platform like WordPress that people have been using for 10 years inside of this company to publish content to their site. And now all of a sudden they want to publish that same data to a mobile app or to uh, maybe they maybe they couldn't make a responsive version of their desktop site. So they made a mobile version, a standalone mobile version. A lot of the data that's in a a web publishing database is sort of polluted with layout instructions that assume a large window or they assume that HTML, CSS, and JavaScript are respected at all times. Uh, and that's not always the case. That's becoming less and less the case, which is the sort of the premise of the talk is that a lot of the data and a lot of the backend things that we do and the user experiences that we're good at designing aren't necessarily going to end up living in a browser. They're going to end up living in the today widget in the iOS notification drawer or on, mm. widget on Android, or they're going to be spoken to us by Amazon Echo. So there are all these new interfaces, the car interfaces, the, you know, there's just more and more of these things. 
And it, you can't just assume that everything that you put into, you know, if you've got like uh, an article and it's got a title and uh, maybe a description, maybe an author, and then the body of the article, that's not enough. There needs to be a short headline, a medium headline. There needs to be metadata about the authors. There needs to be an, potentially an audio version. There's so many, so many bits of metadata that would be useful to a front end developer. And I use that with air quotes because I don't mean a front end web developer, uh, a front end developer who's created an experience maybe uh, for, you know, a voice interface for Siri, or mm. they're trying to create a card interface for Android Wear, or who knows what, who knows what's going to come out next. So to paint yourself into a corner with your, in your database, with your actual content is, was a very painful problem. This idea of making your content more rich with, with not just a, you know, like if you're the New York times, for example, not just having a article, a written article, but also having the audio format in case you want to read this article through Amazon echo and you don't just want a text to speech program to read it to you. Um, you want the, you want the metadata. So maybe some sort of news summarization application could give it to you. Um, this is a really interesting idea. It's a really bright future because I think about consuming news today and there's just a gigantic torrent of news, like every single day, tons and tons of articles, tons of things you could read, tons of redundant information. Um, and I think, you know, the picture you paint is something that looks like a brighter future that uh, will surface the content that is formatted the best, um, and which will probably also drive the the best authors of that content to create it in that polished format. Um, but so you've also talked about this move towards apps over browsers. You know, people using their phones, they're increasingly using apps. They're decreasingly using mobile browsers. Uh, I hadn't said that. Oh, okay. Um, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah, it's it's a subtle distinction, and it and the confusion is actually it's uh, no fault of yours. It's the confusion comes from the language of the web, which is horribly outdated. So, I think you know from a strategic standpoint, I I don't think I do not advise my clients to abandon the web to create a native app. Not at all. Uh, I might say that typically this would be rare, but typically. there could be a situation where I say, okay, do your iOS app first, then do a mobile web thing, then we'll go to Android. Uh, but you should be, you should, I hate using the word should. Uh, often businesses who are creating, who are publishing content and services over the network have, uh, they'll focus on just one thing, which I, th- I think that's a mistake. Um, the, the, and, and they should be setting up their backend and their software architecture to be able to serve content out through anything regardless. So that's one thing. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing is that browsing on the mobile web, or let me back up. First of all, the browser is a native app, right? Obviously. Um, just like Facebook on mobile is a native app. Facebook on iOS is a native app. Chrome on iOS is a native app. And... I actually have started to create a distinction in the terminology between Chrome and Facebook, let's say on iOS. Chrome is what I would call a general purpose web browser, which has its deep, deep roots in the desktop user experience and user interface paradigm. And Facebook, which in my opinion is a special purpose web browser, if you want to look at it like that. They're both native apps. They both display tons and tons of web content. Chrome, in fact, exclusively web content, uh, but Facebook, quite a bit of web content. So you can think of Facebook as a special purpose web browser, and you can think of Chrome as a general purpose web browser. So I draw a distinction between the, the, if you will, the death of the browser or the increasing marginalization of the mobile browser. There's a distinction between that and the general health of the web. The web's doing great. The web's just fine. It's not going to go away. It's going to do nothing but grow for the rest of my life. But browsing the web is a behavior that is desktop specific and is, I th- in my opinion, best done on a relatively large monitor with a keyboard and mouse or some sort of pointing device. 
And that is not a behavior that people are engaging in in mobile browsers for whatever reason. We could debate that. But I don't think this is a bad thing for the web. And I just wanted to interrupt there to make sure that people listening don't think I think the web is dead. Far from it. I think it's quite the reverse. I think what we're doing is we're getting much more interesting and um, special purpose views into this place. So I, I see the web as a place. And we've got different portals through which we can view that place. VR, which you mentioned earlier, is going to be another one. And people will be like, what? That's stupid. Why would you browse the web in VR? And the reason is the reason that people will do it is because it's not going to look like the, the web that we're used to, but it's still going to be web servers. It's still going to be HTTP. It's still going to be all of that. Mm. You know, I, I've had a number of discussions lately about the world moving towards this uh, specialized browser world, browsing within walled gardens, whether it's Facebook or Tumblr or Pinterest or Quora. Uh, and this conversation often comes up around the Facebook uh, free basics program. I, ha I had a conversation with somebody from the EFF about this uh, and their concern because people in developing countries believe that Facebook is the internet. They will say this. Um, and I realize this is somewhat out of you know, your, uh, your domain, you know, you particularly talk about, you know, how, how developers should, the world is changing. How should developers respond to this? Uh, you don't, uh, as far as I've seen, take a, you know, critical perspective one way or another. Is this a bad thing? Is this a good thing? Um, but the way I see it is like the, the internet is, uh, is not necessarily browsing on a web browser. Uh, it's, it's using the internet, whether that's Facebook or email or a browser or Tumblr or however you want to use it, and um, or AOL. And uh, there's not anything inherently bad about a shift towards uh, using a collection of walled gardens um, to consume your content rather than going through the browser, um, this one-size-fits-all bundle of, of materials um, but I mean, what's your, what's your perspective about this? Like you said, you know, the health of the internet or the, the health of the web, I'm not sure what your distinction between web and internet is, but, uh, you said it's great. And, um, you know, I'm curious if, if what I've just said evokes any, any thoughts about that health discussion. You know, you're touching on the hot button topic and I wouldn't. I, you know, my answer to it in general is a quote by Herbert Stein, which is that trends that can't continue won't. So it doesn't really make a ton of sense for people to fight about what's going to happen. And this is bad. You know, this is, this is going to be bad for uh, users. You know, users, I think, are going to, I mean, I could be wrong about this. It could be that Facebook gets so powerful that they're able to, to look, you know, become for all intents and purposes, the web. I don't see how that could happen, though. Um, I, I just don't see it. People might fear it and people might want to fight against it. And that's fine if that's how you want to spend your time. <laughs> but I don't I don't see it like I just don't see it like that because I mean, you know, I'm 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 not a nonprofit freedom fighter for the web. I run a business advising companies about what they should do. So <clears throat> when it comes time to do that, I am going to listen to their business goals and I'm going to look at the audience that they are trying to reach and I'm going to do what's in the best interest of that audience because that is almost certainly going to be the best business decision for them to make. And, you know, if the audience is in Myanmar and they've got uh, very, very expensive data access that they use, uh, you know, pay, uh, that they pay as they go, and Facebook has the the best, um, the lowest latency and the the uh, the least bloated access to this information. Of course, of course, I would tell those people to use Facebook instead of going to you know using a, a general purpose browser and going to a site with a you know a whatever hundred megabyte picture of a salad. You know, it's like <laughs> as decoration. It's, it's kind of like. Um, uh, honestly, if we were wanting to get philosophical about it, I think that things like, um, uh, what's that new thing for the new Google uh, 
push to have like faster websites and, and Facebook's instant articles and yeah, um, all that stuff is is kind of like trends that can't continue won't because web developers, I blame myself as much as anybody else, have gotten lazy over the years and created these bloated behemoth sites that are making hundreds of network requests to pull in all sorts of adware slash spyware. And they have mm. these gigantic video hero images that autoplay infinitely. So they just never stop eating your bandwidth. That's just, that is, I think the, pe- the, the that's the pendulum swung, I think as far as it's going to go in that direction mm. and instant articles, is it swinging back the other way? And the, the Google thing, I wish I could remember the, the acronym. It's like, uh, it's like AMP AM, or AM, something. AM, yeah. Yeah. Um, that it's, it's almost hilarious. If you actually read through it, it's almost like a marketing campaign <laughs> that they're backing with some infrastructure. That's like, stop putting all this freaking JavaScript in your pages. People. It's basically well, it's, like, it's basically right. Write your pages lighter. Well, it's marketing, but it's, I mean, you know, you go to, I don't want to name a specific news site, but like one of these old world news sites who have just kind of like slapdash thrown video into their articles. And like, you'll, you'll go to the, you'll go to the, you'll click on an article somewhere and like takes you to this, uh, you know, insert old world news site takes you to this old world news site. And like, it takes a really long time to load. And then it's like part of the text loads. And then it's like, okay, there's something loading at the top and it still hasn't finished loading. And you start scrolling down the page and then you start hearing audio and you're like, what's going on? And you scroll back to the top. You're like, oh, it was a video. And now the video's loaded and it auto played. Yeah. Why is this happening? So, yeah, so that's that's embarrassing. And there's a couple of different ways to, to approach that. You could see that, you know, a lot of my friends' reaction to that is to go on a campaign to get, well, what did you call them, old world website, you know, like news people to get them to stop being like that. But the other way to look at it is it's a huge opportunity for news sites that aren't bloated. So if it's truly, if that's actually a bad experience, I mean, all of us listening here think that's a horrible experience, but do people really care? If people really care, then they'll go to a fast news site. So, mm-hmm. you know, I worked on the TechCrunch redesign. TechCrunch, TechCrunch fell into that category. That thing was slow. Go there now. It's screaming fast. Do you think that it is, I mean, they'd have to tell you the answer to this. Did that increase readership? I'm willing to bet it did. And so, so what that does is it puts, uh, if you're a web developer or web designer and you're out beating, you know, you're calling up people trying to get clients and saying, your website's too slow. That's a terrible user experience. You should really change that. You really should, should, should. They're not going to listen. But if you say, if you decrease your page load times by one second, your readership will double. Now they're listening. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, maybe they need to be enlightened a little bit to, uh, to agree that those, that that's a credible claim. But, you know, if, if we're all right, if, if all of us inside baseball folks, all the people who are building the web, if we're all right about the importance of, let's just say load time, then, you know, it, it's a no brainer. It's a giant opportunity. And mm. you look at, you know, Neil Patel, who I really, I don't know him, but I, I just love his work. Yeah. He's at the verge now. And he went on a big rant about how, you know, when, when the ad blocking came out with Safari about how, you know, uh, you know, how can you sleep at night? You're taking money out of my kids' mouths and stuff. And it's like, look, don't complain because your business model's broken. Right. No, no one wants that. And, yeah. and people are voting with their behavior and voting with their traffic. And it should be, obviously he's, not going to see it like that because it's forest for the trees. I'm sure I'm blind to certain things that are so close to me as well. But uh, that was a very uncharacteristic thing for him because normally he's very insightful. And the issue is that uh, I think a lot of these, we're, we're getting maybe way off track here, so I'll wrap with this. <laughs> I think the issue is that the, the, the interruption, the eyeballs economy, I think is not, a, not a dependable. It's not good. So mm-hmm. if that's your model, then you're going to be in trouble. And then a lot of people like that will say, but how can we continue to pay the salaries for all these people without ads? And the answer is you can't, you have to come up with something else, right? You know, and, and is there a something else? Maybe not. Maybe the era of having a, 
a hundred people working on a blog, because that's basically what The Verge is, uh, is not a good business. Maybe that's just a bad business. There are plenty of bad businesses, and that might be one. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, so- Software Engineering Daily, this podcast, like right now we're ad-supported. Uh, if there's like an ad blocker for podcasts that comes out, you know, there's very high probability that we would have to switch to something else, subscrip- subscription model or some sort of weird consulting thing. Um, but like, that that's good. fine. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with the whole free market thing and whatever, I'm ready for whatever comes at me. Um, but anyway, so, um, so anyway, g- getting back to, to the world of, of developers and, and, you know, I, I like this perspective of the world is changing uh, rather than bicker about what the problems are with that, as developers, we should think about what is actionable. What kinds of career transitions or focuses can we make to thrive in the changing world? So one example, like as we start to have more and more of these verticalized platforms, these walled gardens, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn um, or um, anything, you know, this API economy, this walled garden world, um, it seems like it's becoming increasingly important for developers to understand the Facebook API or the LinkedIn API. So I think you touched on this, that developers could focus on on becoming integration specialists. So to what degree is this a marketable skill? Like, can you become a professional Facebook API person or do you have to, is that, are we not there yet? Like, are you, are you thinking more in terms of like, you have to become an AWS specialist or, um, yeah. What are your thoughts on this API developer? Well, it's the marketing question. Well, how do I put this? It's hard to answer, but I know how to find out. So I, I, maybe I don't know the answer to this, but I know how you could find out. So if you're a developer and you are interested in doing this, you'd say, um, where do I start? It's like there are developers often see a shiny new thing. It's especially, it seems maybe it's just my world, but it seems especially epidemic in front-end development, there's like a new front-end JavaScript framework every 15 minutes. So, you know, it's like you, it's, it's to the point where literally no one can keep up with it. It could be a full-time job just keeping up with new front-end frameworks for web development. And it's tempting when new things come out, like, um, being able to, uh, the, the ASK or, or the, uh, whatchamacallit, the SDK for working with Amazon Alexa or, uh, new stuff coming out of Google, uh, Google now on tap, I think it's called. And all, all of these, all of these things are, some of them are, they're very shiny objects and, and developers want to run from one to the next to learn them all and see what it is. And maybe, maybe like, and that's not for me or that's stupid or that's awesome. And, and get very excited about it on Twitter and with their friends and at meetups and all that. And I honestly, I think that that's a little, a little bit of a, that's a tough approach to market. So you, I think it's really hard if you're going to be jumping from, from thing to thing like that, you, you need to specialize on something and therefore it would be a vertical who is likely going to need this broad range of skills. So that that's where you get back to the dentist thing. APIs specifically, I think that there, there is a mar- there can be a market for that or there might not be. It depends on who you're going after. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I would say is to find out before you do it. So if you're going to invest a whole bunch of time and by a whole bunch of time, I mean like a couple of weeks, let's say, I mean, if you're just going to like blow a few hours over the weekend, then that's no big deal. But if you're really going to try something out <clears throat> and go for it, I would say do something to see if anybody cares. So, um, and more importantly that you can get in touch with the people who care. So specializing on something like AWS is a little tricky because it's kind of, it's not totally under the covers. I mean, it's totally backend, 
but business owners may know that they're using AWS to host their SaaS, or they may not. That may be sort of something that's handled by lead developer or CTO, and the CEO doesn't really know what they're using. Depending on the size of the company, the CEO might not know or care. Uh, it's kind of like uh, MySQL is another good example where the <clears throat> the CEO or the, the higher ranking people in the company who are the ones that are most likely to give you to be in control of a big budget and be able to benefit the most from your expertise. Uh, those people probably don't know if or where they're using MySQL in their organization. It's probably something that's built into other stuff that they're aware of. Mm. So specializing, specializing on something and marketing yourself as an expert on that thing is very difficult until you get to the like the global expert level. So if you are if you're going to be like oh, my my Amazon Echo is talking to me, um, <laughs> she must have heard her name. So if you're going to specialize on something like that, you need to be prepared to compete against the three people in the world who are already there. So if you are you know if you if you want to be like the the page speed, the go-to person for increasing your performance, Steve Suiters is your competition. So you better bring it because he's, he's going to get the call first. Uh, if you want to specialize in, um, it depends on how specific you get and how your ability to reach that audience. And it's, it's much easier with business type things where you can say, I'm going to, you know, decrease your costs or I'm going to increase your income. I mean, that's, those are the, the two like you go into mm. a business to make money. That's why you started it. And if, if you know, there's two ways to make more money, decrease your costs and increase your revenue. So the farther you get a, your skill set is abstracted from that thing, the harder it's going to be to sell it to the, the people you want to be selling to. And honestly, it's very often just a question of how you talk about your services, whether or not they'll get it, if that made sense. Mm. So most people I say, they talk about like, oh, I'm, I, I know how to do this and I know how to do that. And I know how to, do it's kind of like, it's kind of like a general contractor coming to me and saying, well, I know how to use a skill saw and I know how to use a hammer and I know how to use a drill and do you want to <laughs> hire me? And I, it's like, I, I, I don't know. Wow. You're the, you literally won the award for best guy with a drill. You know, it, it, I don't care. Right. You don't care if you have someone in to fix your house or put an addition on your house. It's probably good that he's good with a drill, but I don't really care. Mm. I'm assuming you're good with a drill. I'm assuming everybody I get in here is going to be good enough with a drill to create this addition on my house that I want for various reasons. Mm. So if you, so if instead the general contractor comes in and he, you know, he knows he's the best in the world with a DeWalt drill, it's not relevant to me. I really don't care. It might be relevant to him for other reasons or to his peers. Uh, and it might help him in many ways, but sales is not one of them. So mm. he needs to talk to me about how long it's going to take, how much money it's going to cost. Uh, he needs to ask me really smart questions that I didn't think to ask myself, you know, things like that. You know, much more um, sort of consultative partnership type of arrangement where the the vendor, this, in this case, the general contractor, or in the case of the dear listener, uh, software development, you use the skills that, that you have from doing software development to have the right conversation with your target market or your ideal clients. And you don't bother them with the implementation details. It's like nobody who works on the, you know, web designers, web developers, we don't care how HTTP works. We're glad it works, but we don't need, <laughs> we don't need to learn that in order. We don't need to educate ourselves about HTTP 99% of the time. And for the same reason, the, the owner of a company does not need to educate themselves about, you know, whether or not you should use a hamburger menu. It's mm. like, it's like, what are your, hello, CEO, what are your business goals? Well, we want to reach more people on more devices. Great. Then we should probably go with a responsive website so that you can immediately blanket the entire population of smartphones. <laughs> and then we can talk about doing something that is more specific to the, um, the bulk of your users. So we'll get in. <laughs> right. We'll see that we've got mostly iOS people. So we'll put some money into a native iOS experience because that's more polished. Yada, yada, yada. And don't, you don't get yeah. into like, you know, all that other inside baseball stuff that they don't care about anyway. Mm. So there are two kind of conflicting trends that uh, I feel have come out of this conversation so far. So one of them is that 
the web is dying um, or no. that, sorry, <laughs> sorry, not that the web is dying. I know, it, well, okay, web development in a post-browser world, the browser is dying. Browser use is declining yes. or, okay, there's, okay, that's that's the finer point. Um, but the other, which you mentioned, um, you didn't mention this by name, but it's Atwood's Law, basically. I've, you've, I've seen you mention this in your talks. Um, you know, JavaScript is is, is uh, increasing in importance. So, uh, you know, we don't develop mobile apps in JavaScript these days, um, for the, for the most part. Um, so do you, do you think, uh, are, are these, are these orthogonal trends in any way, or how do you see this being resolved? Do you think we're going to be able to develop good mobile apps in JavaScript in the future? I would argue that we do develop the back end of a lot of iOS and Android apps with JavaScript. So Node is a huge player and web services are a very big deal for uh, development. And I, I don't think that JavaScript, I don't think that JavaScript needs to be the language that is used for every, you know, d developing Xbox games and, and 360 degree videos don't need to be developed with JavaScript, you know? I don't think it needs to be everything, but, but uh, I'm hearing a little bit in your question. Maybe I'm reading into it too much. I'm hearing a little bit that you equate JavaScript development with browser development, and that is not the case. So mm. JavaScript, you can use JavaScript to create um, apps for the Pebble Watch. You can use JavaScript to create skills for Amazon uh, Alexa. You can use JavaScript to create massively concurrent uh, APIs that reside in a web host. So there's, there's just so much opportunity for JavaScript. I'm probably forgetting a dozen other ones that are, that are new non-browser uh, set top boxes that there are uh, Arduino's, uh, what is it called? Tessel. The entire operating system is programmable with JavaScript. There's just tons of them. Sure. Never mind the fact that there's still the desktop web. I mean, it's not, uh, all of this stuff, I, I think it's becoming more and more marginalized. And the, the more mobile grows and the more mobile usage grows, the more there will be a decrease in tr what we would consider traditional web browsing. You're not going to mm -hmm. click through from site to site to site to site to site to site to site anymore. You do a search in something or you see a feed in something, you tap on a link, you the thing opens in a web view, you read it, you close it, and you're back to the thing that you started at. Whether that's Google Now, whether that's Facebook, whether that's Twitter, whether it's a voice interface, who knows? It could be anything, but there's the discovery part, then there's the results part or the stream part, and then there's the actual consumption of the content. And typically, you know, at least in, in my experience, this is, you know, U.S. type of, of situation. You know, I'm like most familiar with the U.S. That's where I am. People don't browse the web before. Like you used to sit down in front of your computer and put your coffee down and you'd be, you'd like browse the internet. You would, <laughs> surf. you would surf that. No one, you don't do that. Do you on your phone? Uh, the closest thing I would say is going to hacker news. Okay. There you go. And what is that? It's a long list that you click through and then you go back. Yeah. Maybe there's still, there's still some, some, um, sort of wormholes like Reddit's a wormhole for me. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's all these lists, basically. You know, it's like uh, whether it's Hacker News or Slashdot or Product Hunt, they're all just like lists of links. Um, and I, ideally, the like these links would not open up browsers; they would open up apps. Um, yeah. I mean, that's 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 a tangent. But like every time I I have to click on one of these, I'm I'm slightly dreading the context switch to the browser. Mm -hmm. It's getting, that's getting better that you're right. That's the subject of a different conversation, but cause links now are starting to open apps on iOS. Yeah. They always have on Android or not always, but for a long time. And now that that's happening on iOS, the switching costs a lot less because then the OS gives you a back button to get back to the previous application. So it's not as bad as it was, but I, I feel your pain. It was a lot worse <laughs> before and having those in-app browsers pop up. Uh, that was a drag that Apple has recently at least giving people the tools to solve because you'd open that in-app browser and you're, you, you know, you'd be signed into the site in Safari, but you're not signed into it inside of Facebook's web view, but now you are, you know, mm. because they share cookies across, across the two. And I think I'm correct to say that that same thing has happened on Android with uh, Chrome inside or something it's called where you, you get, you get 
you get Chrome inside the app so you don't have to get that context switching problem. But again, this is like, look, people's, people's usage of the web and the web browser in particular has changed. And I think that on mobile, since mobile is the ascendant platform and, and it is the dominant computing platform now, and it's just going to get more dominant, you know, you, people need to pull their heads out of the sand and realize that it's not necessarily a bad thing that people are browsing it differently. It's a much more efficient way, you know, now that the web that used to be able to like, you know, the, the people updated DNS manually at one time, you could actually have a list in a text file of every IP address that how it mapped every <laughs> domain name. There used to be a, there used to be a fairly slim phone book of every email address <laughs> on the internet. And uh. as it's exploded and it has exploded, and the web is just growing like crazy. It makes perfect sense that you would have, you'd want to consume it in a way that was, uh, you know, customized to your habits and, and the way that you wanted to read it. So things mm. like Instapaper is a, is a great older example. Instapaper has been around for years. It's a classic example of, you know, somebody saying, you know what, I don't want all of this design stuff. I just want to read the content and I'm just going to throw it over to Instapaper and read it later. Mm. And that's a classic case. And, you know, it's in Facebook in a way is a, is an on steroids version of that, where it's like, I just want to hang around with my friends in Facebook and share links back and forth. And we'll read the links and laugh about it and comment on them. And they're still looking at websites. They're just not going to Chrome or Safari. Okay. So we've talked some about the changing trends of the web. Um, I want to talk some about the work that you do. You've spent a lot of time consulting with really big companies like CVS and Staples and Time Magazine. You mentioned uh, TechCrunch. Yep. And um, I mean, TechCrunch is kind of an exception. The, these are, these, but these are not particularly engineering driven companies. And um, I find this subject really interesting this idea that. Uh, there's an increasing need for these companies that were formerly not engineering driven to adopt a software presence. Uh, I mean, this has been going on for some time now, uh, but it's only intensifying. Um, you know, these companies have to get increasingly mobile presence. Um, maybe you could take me through, and I don't know if, if, if you can talk about any of these in companies in specific or Maybe you want to talk about general advice that you give to these big companies, but I'd love to get a picture of how you work with them and what their acumen is when it comes to uh, making the technological pivots. Mm. That's actually, it's a probably, it's a very broad question. Uh, it, the answer is that it depends a lot on their situation. So, what I bring to the table is an understanding of the landscape and some loose predictions about where it's going to go in the near term and maybe some more uh, wild-eyed prognostications about where we'll be in five to ten years. And it's it's based on data, but, you know, you're looking into the future and things are changing so fast, it's hard. So, in general, my advice to them is to stay as flexible as you can because, you know, the, the one thing that's for sure is that everything's going to change. So, uh, the, a lot of the large companies that I talk to, I think this is pretty true and it makes sense. They have legacy systems that were created to, well, first they hit in, maybe in the eighties, they were really cutting edge and they had backend systems, uh, that, that they had an IT department that, excuse me, managed backend systems for the back office, you know, things like maybe, maybe accounting. Uh, maybe some kind of messaging, maybe some kind of supply chain stuff. And the, and then when this notion of a, of a customer facing technology, like a website uh, came to the fore or a customer facing technology, maybe even a POS, you could call, you know, a point of sale terminal and a McDonald's, you could consider a computer and, you know, a connected device. Cause they, you know, they were connected. You could see that as an early customer facing thing that IT had to handle, but it was really still, that was really infrastructure type stuff. Once it started to turn into a website and you needed to take the, the customer behavior into account that I, I feel like, um, it was a little bit outside of the skills of what the IT department was created for in the first place. And that it, there's an argument that it should have been in the marketing or the, or a product department. 
but regardless, the the geeks were called upon to create this website. And so now they've got these systems. And at the time, people didn't carry their desktop computers around with them in line at Starbucks checking their bank account. It was something that you did sitting down with a keyboard and a mouse, probably with your back to anyone around you. And you were in work mode. You're sitting there working. And maybe you were, you know, maybe you were whatever, reading a blog or something, but you were in work mode and you were there for probably uh, longer than a few minutes. Once everybody ended up, you know, it was 2007 to the 8, 9, 10, right around there, everybody had a supercomputer in their pocket that was connected to the global network. And you could quickly dip into uh, anything. You could just whip out your phone and check your bank balance on Bank of America. You could transfer money while, you know, as you were walking up to the counter so that you knew that, you know, the, the bank check you were about to take out came out of the right account. And you, you, run your, you, you run your Starbucks app in front of the payment scanner. It immediately is debited from your account. It immediately draws off your credit card. And the credit card company immediately sends a notification to your phone because you also have the Amex app installed. And then that's immediately broadcast to your watch. So instantly now, the, the, the user experience now is that all of the devices, the POS, the back end, the back office of Starbucks, the, you know, the Pebble watch on your wrist, their infrastructure, the push notification structure, uh, Apple push notification service, the phone, the apps, the Amex app on the phone. Expectation is I can swipe a credit card. I can uh, either swipe a credit card or scan my phone to Starbucks and millions of dollars of equipment is, is basically mine for a microsecond and it processes this transaction. Most old companies, they, they have back office infrastructure that is comprised of Excel documents that they FTP to their store locations every night, or they're batching POS transactions nightly. So the data gets siloed if only temporarily for say 24 hours to 48 hours. And you can't deliver an experience to end users. If, if you can't update your database within a minute, you're in big trouble because you're not going to be able to deliver an experience that people expect in their pocket. You can deliver, Mm. you can deliver a desktop experience, but not a pocket experience. Mm. (coughs) So if we're talking in general terms, the first thing I say to people is like, look, you don't want to hear this, but you need to figure out how you're going to get your back end to be real time. And that mm-hmm. is a huge undertaking and there's no easy way to do it. Although a great way to do it would be put APIs in front of those things and cache the data and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, another thing that is a problem is that a lot of the back office stuff, the database, the data in a large organization is siloed into different departments. So if you imagine a company that has a uh, transactional POS system where they take credit cards. They've got a dot-com presence where they have user accounts. They've got a loyalty program that they have either physical plastic cards or they've got an app. They've got a mobile app. They could have four or five different user logins for the same person that are each owned by a different department in a different database. And all of the departments are incentivized to compete with each other financially. So they don't want to share any of that information. So you've got this data silo problem, but really the underlying problem is that in you know, most corporations, people are incentivized to compete with each other, even though they should all be wrong in the same direction. So there are all sorts of financial reasons why they would not cooperate. So there's a data silo problem, but that can't really be solved until there's a motivation, a solution to the motivation problem. Uh, because the entire brand, if you will, like if you're Starbucks, the entire company now needs to be in alignment. Like you send out a coupon I shouldn't be only able to use it in store or only able to use it in the app because, oh, I got this out of the paper. Therefore, I can't use it. You know, I can't prepay in my app using the coupon. Like, that's insane. Mm. Why do I have to why do I have to do a certain thing to redeem this coupon? It's all very customer hostile. So, um, you know, so being able to deliver a real time experience, breaking down your data silos is a way to do that. But first, you have to change the way you're, you're motivating your department heads if they're competing with each other. And just staying as flexible as possible, not making big bets on, on monolithic software packages, but instead doing things that are flexible and can change very quickly, can be created by small teams and can be built on top of by other small teams without having all the small teams have to meet, you know, so publishing APIs with, you know, self-documenting APIs is a huge, huge 
uh, step in the right direction. Mm, fascinating. Okay, so I, I want to begin to close off. Um, we've talked a lot about the present and how the past has gotten us to where we are. We've talked a little bit about the future, but I know you think about this a lot. And like you said, you, it's prognostications, but uh, nonetheless, I find prognostications in, interesting. I find that the average of the prognostications of people that I talk to uh, tends to average towards the future. Mm-hmm. So from what we have not talked about that are in your uh, prognostications, uh, what what is interesting that you think will manifest in the digital landscape in the next few years? I'll be echoing a lot of a lot of people, but I think that VR is going to be transformative. It's going to be it's going to change entertainment, uh, gaming. It, per- perhaps it will start touching travel and real estate industries. I don't think it's going to replace the smartphone. I think it's going to be the kind of thing that you use in your house uh, that to to you know mostly for recreational purposes. And it you know it, I get skepticism on this and. I would say 99 times out of a hundred, the skeptics skepticism comes from people who have never tried it. If, <laughs> if you try it, you know, it's going to catch on. It, it will catch on. It's going to be a very big deal. I, I you know, Oculus, they announced this year is going to be 600 bucks, uh, but you probably need a $3,000 computer to run it. So it's easy to imagine people saying like, Oh, that's no, who would spend that money? That's crazy. <laughs> you know, it'll be gamers that already own the $3,000 computer. And yeah, it's not going to be 2016 is not going to be the year of Oculus, but you know, Google cardboard's free. And you know, if you have a smartphone, you just slip it in there. You could print out a plan and cut it out of a pizza box and put it on your face. Mm -hmm. And you know, this Thanksgiving I had my nieces and nephews over and range in age from two to 13 and they were fighting over Google cardboard. I, I let them take it, you know, take it home with them because it's, it is totally different. You are transported to a different place, even with a free viewer. It mm. is shocking. It's incredibly intuitive. If you throw in voice computing to it, you throw a voice interface on it, you get conversational computing and mm. VR where you can talk to it while you're looking around. Now, all of a sudden, anybody from age maybe three or four and up can use it utterly intuitively, just completely obvious how to use it. Yeah, um, it's it is so insane that uh, I I can't wait, frankly. Yeah, and this decrease in cost, like with the people who are like, oh, it's cost prohibitive, or it's not going to catch on, or whatever. It makes me think of. Um, uh, so I was in I, recently. I live in Seattle, and there's this there's this uh, museum, the Museum of uh, History and Innovation. It's like a Jeff Bezos and Microsoft joint venture and they have all this interesting uh exhibition stuff on uh technology and what has changed and i was there recently and there was this exhibit about uh you know cell phones like history of cell phones and uh, there was this early um kind of collection of marketing documents from from cellular phone stuff it's like these car phones and it's just like these executives driving around in in cars and these are the only people who use cell phones uh and they're in their cars and these cell phones are big and clunky. Um, uh, and it's just like, you know, who could have guessed at that time that, um, you know, people in India would have, uh, or I'm sorry, you know, the farmers in India uh, would have, you know, smartphones that cost, you know, $10. And uh, they're much, much better than what the best executive could buy 20, 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um so, so yeah, this, this decreasing cost stuff is, is a real deal. Um, anyway, Jonathan, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. This has been a super interesting conversation about the past, present, and future of web development in a post-browser world. Um, I look forward to meeting you at the Fluent Conference, uh, which I'll be attending uh, in a couple months. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.